0: Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, so we're pivoting a little bit today. Two weeks ago, as many of you know, we began a new sermon series on the minor prophets called the Hidden Prophets, and we're going to continue that next Sunday. But after the week we've had, and honestly, after the year we've had, um, And the fact that we find ourselves today in the first Sunday of the season of Lent, I wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction. Um, If you didn't grow up observing Lent, if that's something that's new to you, you might be wondering what that's all about. Uh, Some people struggle with the fact that Lent is not something that we expressly see in the pages of Scripture, which is true. Um, But the practices that we undertake during Lent uh, namely fasting and prayer, are not only seen in the scriptures, but Jesus's expectation seems to be that his followers will be doing these things as we await his return. And so, as for me, as far as I'm concerned, I, I need Lent. And, and honestly, not just one time a year. I need these seasons of fasting and prayer throughout the year. And I need it because it's shockingly easy for me to walk through my days without being disgusted by or ashamed of my own sin. Shockingly easy for me to do that. In fact, it's pretty easy for me to walk through my days without even thinking about my own sin. Without even thinking about the ways that I fall short of God's glory. It's a piece of cake to justify and normalize and validate things that are ultimately an affront to God. My own selfishness, pride, arrogance, anger, lust, all of those things. Or or to put it another way, it's easy for me to walk through my days without appreciating the depths of my need for rescue, the depths of my need for a savior, for me to be so laser focused on the things that I want or the things I feel entitled to that I have no bandwidth to even consider what he might want, to consider the fact that he is a personal God who, is, who desires to be known and who has a will that can be known by me. If you were with us last year for our study of Romans, this is basically where the Apostle Paul starts in the book of Romans. You may remember these words from chapter 3. Just listen to these. This is Paul actually quoting from the Psalms. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one." No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Guys, in a world that desperately wants to believe in the inherent goodness of every person, this season actually calls us back to take an honest look inside and to find that in fact the opposite is true. But this isn't so that we will wallow in self-loathing or self-pity, it's so that the gospel will actually be good news to you and to me. It's so that the hope of Christ will truly take root in us and grow and flourish. And I would contend that if you find the message of the gospel to be commonplace or mundane or unremarkable, it could be that it's, it's, it's because, not because you grew up in the church or just because you've like heard it a lot, it, it could be because you don't actually see yourself or maybe even the people around you as being in need of rescue as being in need of a Savior. It's only when we become well acquainted with our inability and our own wickedness that we are primed to fall in love with Jesus' saving perfection. And today's text reminds us that this Savior is both like us and yet wholly unlike us. He's like us in that he too has stared down the barrel of temptation. He is unlike us in that he's like batting a thousand when it comes to resisting its pull. Let's look at our text, Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil he ate nothing during those days and when they were ended he was hungry so the backdrop here guys uh, and we looked at this a few weeks ago the backdrop here is jesus's baptism in the jordan by john the baptist was this amazing miraculous moment in the story of jesus it's this moment where the spirit of god descends on him like a dove and this booming voice from the heavens declares this is my beloved son in whom I I am well pleased. But then it's the Spirit of God that also leads Jesus into the wilderness or in the Greek, what is known as the Eremos. This is the word for wilderness or desert or sometimes it's translated as desolate place or lonely place. And while we don't know um, while we only know, rather, of this particular instance where, like, Satan himself specifically tempts Jesus, Luke does tell us that Jesus was often withdrawing to the eremos He was often withdrawing to desolate places, desert places, wilderness places. It was a regular occurrence. Luke 5.16 says that the purpose of his withdrawal into the eremos was prayer, That Jesus would go away by himself. He wouldn't tell anybody. He'd kind of vanish. His disciples would be looking for him. He would go out early in the morning so that he might pray. So that he might meet with his father. Notice also that Luke is quick to drive home the point here that Jesus is fasting. And that he is hungry. Right? He's not above hunger. He's not living on some uber-spiritual, supernatural plane where he doesn't need food. That's not what's going on here. And as we said, Jesus is like us, but Jesus is wholly unlike us. And that's a difficult tension to some extent for us. It's hard to grasp. We're, We're honestly more comfortable with Jesus being either fully God or Jesus being fully man but not both and. When we read the story of the temptation, it can be easy for us to assume that Jesus was so like supernaturally above the grasp of temptation that it wasn't tempting. But recognize that temptation that isn't tempting is not temptation. Temptation that isn't tempting isn't temptation. Jesus was not like in a Zen state here, right? Right? It's why Luke reminds us that he ate nothing. The backdrop is hunger. The backdrop is vulnerability. You see this in your own life, no doubt. I see it in my life. You're more apt to give in to temptation when certain variables or certain triggers are in play in your life. When your comfort or your security is at stake, or when you just simply aren't getting your way you might be more apt to fall into sin. You throw into the mix with that things like hunger or irritability or anger or alcohol or drugs, and the inhibitions are lowered. The word hangry is used often around our house. I don't know if any of you guys experience that, but when the blood sugar drops, it can be difficult to even be pleasant to people around you. So if you're honest, there are times when you feel out of control of your behavior. Paul even talks about this. He says, guys, there are times when I I do things I don't know why I do them. The things I want to do, I don't do. What is going on? There are times when your mood or your stomach or some other external influence almost puts you on autopilot. So Jesus is staring down temptation from a place of vulnerability. And it's a place that would make us crumble, right? Haven't eaten in 40 days. And Satan offers him all the solutions here. If you are the son of God, then command this stone to become bread. Like, this is not only an appeal to his aching stomach, but it's also an appeal to his pride, right? Notice how it begins. If, if you are what you say, if you really are the Christ, if you really are what you claim, then prove it. I don't believe you can do it. It's almost like he's taunting him a little bit. But then he offers, to you I will give all this authority And their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Satan pulls back and shows him all the world. But the caveat is, I'll give you all of this if you then will worship me. It will all be yours. I've given you the solution of bread. You've rebuffed that. So how about power, glory, and authority? Notice, though, that as the devil seemingly offers supreme authority to Christ, supreme power on earth, as if he didn't already have it. What Satan's really offering is only servitude. You don't have supreme power and glory and authority if you must then bow to someone else. And yet that's so often how he tempts us as well. Don't you want all these things? Look like look at the shiny objects. Satan then takes him to the high point of the temple in Jerusalem and says this, If, again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, there's this inherent questioning of his power, his ability. It's like he's saying, I bet you aren't man enough. Like, I bet you can't really do it. Notice also that Satan pulls out scripture here. Jesus has been quoting scripture throughout. You probably noticed that. But here Satan pulls out scripture and he quotes directly from Psalm 91. But he takes the passage out of context. The point the psalmist is making is not that God won't let you die if you try to kill yourself. It's that God is our trustworthy refuge and fortress, that he is our protector. Which brings me to my favorite coffee mug. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? It's so true. So often, the enemy uses the words of Scripture to trick us and to trip us up. And it's not hard. It's happening all the time, it's happening every single day. The enemy wants to use the very word of God to confuse you. And he quotes it correctly, he quotes it directly from Psalm 91. But the insinuation, the way that he uses it, the context that he uses it in, is completely counter to the intention of the psalmist. But this can easily lead us into temptation because we're honestly looking for ways to validate our sin. And if I can find a way to validate my sin through scripture, then bring it on. To some extent, the story of Christian history, or at least a subplot within the story of Christian history, is mankind doing just that. Men using the scriptures to validate all kinds of wickedness, from slavery, to subjection of women, to racism, to child abuse, to xenophobia, and on and on. The only one who's actually using scripture correctly in this account is Jesus, who's resting on the truth of God's word as a defense against temptation. So there is a very real sense in which not only is Jesus experiencing this in the moment, but as he tells his disciples later in John's gospel, I'm giving you an example to follow. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. And you may be wondering, what's the point of all of this? Did the Father just before this say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? Didn't that, didn't that just happen? So what is this? Is, is there a need for Jesus to like prove his loyalty to God the Father? Is, is that what's going on here? Or is something else at play? The writer of Hebrews shed some light on this for us. We've got it up here on the screen. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's huge. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just stop for a moment and think of the ways that you are tempted. Think of all the ways that not only your own flesh, but the enemy, the culture, appeals to you. And then recognize that Jesus has been tempted in every way that you are tempted. You have a great high priest who gets where you're at. You don't have the ability to say, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand how hard it is for me. Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you understand what I have been through? Do you understand what I've done? And because of all of this, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Friends, our Savior does not stand distant or removed from us. No, He passed through the heavens so that He might become incarnate and like dwell among us. He stepped down out of heaven. The writer of Hebrews says He became lower than the angels. He's faced everything we faced and more. In verse 2 of Luke 4, you might have noticed Luke uses the present participle He says, for 40 days being tempted. It doesn't say after 40 days he was tempted, but instead it indicates that Jesus was not only tempted for like part of the 40 days, but rather that perhaps temptation was constant. And maybe we're only getting a glimpse of the ways in which he was tempted. But that also proves his lordship. That he's been tempted in every way, just like us, and yet without sin. Not like us at all. And so it's for this reason that we can draw near to his throne of grace and actually find mercy. Actually find sympathy. This past week, and really this whole past year, the Lord has been showing me that Among the things that tempt me most, comfort is paramount. Comfort is paramount. Sure, I desire money and power and authority and recognition and adulation and appreciation, and all of those kinds of things, but not as ends in and of themselves. I desire those things only so much as they lead to a comfortable life. And it's not simply that I desire comfort. I, for some reason, feel entitled to comfort. Lindsay was sharing with me, she had seen online, somebody had given birth at home in the midst of no power, no running water. And we were just talking about, because we've had a baby at the house before, we were just talking about how crazy that sounds to like have a baby with no running water. And... And I was just thinking about the fact that for most of human history, that's kind of what's happened. It's, it's really only within the last hundred years or so that anything other than that would actually be an option. And it has become so normalized to us that we view it as something that we are just entitled to. So even in a moment where we're slightly inconvenienced, or some level of the luxury that we all live at, like a a level of luxury that is like unconscionable to much of the world. Even when a small piece of that, like running water, is taken away, it seems like this this great suffering (laughs) to many people. And I don't wanna downplay the fact that over the last week, There have been many in our community who have genuinely been suffering. People who don't have heat and people who have been living on the street. I know um, one of our homeless folks here downtown died the other night on Texas Street, sleeping out in the cold. The thing that I constantly grapple with, though, is the fact that Christ has not called me or you to a comfortable life. He hasn't called us to seek success or money or position or luxury in the way that the world defines those things. Rather, he has called us to a life of obedience, and what he's promised is that the way is narrow and hard. Paul says that following Christ is really about losing for the sake of gaining. This is Philippians 3. You may be familiar with this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss For the sake of Christ, all of my accolades, all of my accomplishments, all of the notches in my belt, I count as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To the world, this sounds like pure foolishness. But in the kingdom of God, it is pure wisdom. Friends, Jesus has not promised us a life of comfort and ease. We are not entitled to that, despite what our experience may have been or what we might think. He has promised us something far greater. Reconciliation to the Father through his body and blood. Life, eternal And our hope, while sealed now through the sacrifice of Christ, is yet to be fully realized. And so, this Lent, I pray that you will look inward, that you would intentionally remove things from your life that might be diverting your attention away from Christ, even good things. Like, that's the purpose of fasting. To spend the day not eating for me is really challenging. And it's not just because I'm hungry. It's, it's certainly not because I'm starving. It's because I love food. I love to think about food. I love to cook food. I love to, the, to go to the grocery store and walk around and think about what we're going to eat. I love to buy food. Like It consumes a lot of my time and thinking and effort and energy. And that may not be true for everybody, but there is something for you that draws your gaze. And what's interesting about the food thing in particular is that when you take it away, even for a day, you suddenly realize how weak and frail and fragile you actually are. Try taking it away for two days, three days, 40 days. Then you realize that the scriptures are true when they call your life a vapor, like a wisp of air. Here one day, gone the next. And it is only because of God's grace that you wake up in the morning, that you take breaths, that water comes out of your faucet, that heat comes out of the air conditioning unit. It is his goodness, it is his mercy, and it is not just for you. If the scriptures are clear on anything, it's to those whom much has been given, much is expected." It's not for us to hoard and say, this is mine. This is my right. This is my inheritance. No, it is to be stewarded for the good of others. And so this Lent, I pray that you will genuinely and seriously consider what are the things that divert your gaze and that you would devote yourselves to prayer and the scriptures so that you might be prepared for the assaults of the enemy, for the temptations that come your way, prepared with God's word to respond with truth in the face of untruth. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for the goodness of your sacrifice, for the mercy that you give to us, despite the fact that we are undeserving, God, we give you praise. Thank you for being our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Thank you for extending us hope when we had none. We love you, Jesus.